Well, I think today is going to be a fascinating study for us because today we're going to look at the power of our words, the power of our tongue. Now, as, as we get into this today, I thought I would just share a couple of statistics. You might find this surprising, but it's been said that the average man has, in the United States of America especially, we have about 20,000 words a day that need to come out, we have just 20,000 words a day, whereas the average woman has, it's statistically, uh, about 30,000 words a day that need to come out. Isn't that so surprising? And today, what? Vicious women. But today, there will be 50 million Americans who will listen to 400,000 pastors give sermons, collectively giving over a billion words. And I think we'd all agree that when all is said and done, much more is said than done. As James gets into this teaching on the tongue, as we look at our lives, I think we would all agree that there are times when we have said certain things that have come out of our mouth that we just wish we could bring back in. Am I the only one? I mean, it's just kind of out there, and you just, ooh, you just want to reel it back in, and it's, it's, it's out there. And wouldn't you agree that, that for many of us, some of the most embarrassing things that we've done are simply caused by the words that we have allowed to come out of our mouth? And wouldn't you agree that the the most embarrassing situations that we have found ourselves in, awkward situations, are are related many times to just words. And many times our greatest regrets come from words that have been spoken. Now on the other side, many of our, or the most, um, the best times in our lives have come from words. I mean, the first time that you heard, I love you, or or, or maybe the, the time that you heard, will you marry me. What a great time. I'll never forget that day as I got engaged, just being there and seeing Cheryl go down on one knee and ask me to marry her. It was just, this is very special. My wife's on the front row today. I'm, I'm in trouble after the service. Or, or we hear those words, I'm pregnant. Or I'm pregnant again and again and again. <laughs> however, however it works out for you. I've learned in my life that our words are powerful and they literally shape the lives of our children. In my, in my family, we have four little girls and, and we have a, a, an office set up at home for me to study. And every day, as our girls love to play dress up, they'll come running in. It's especially exciting if mommy lets them wear a little bit of makeup. So Abby's nine and Avery's all the way down at two years of age. And so they'll come in, you see the door open, you're deeply engrossed in what you're doing and they just come in and they're just kind of like standing there with the little princess dress on and they're just waiting for me to look at them and go oh my goodness look how beautiful you are you are so amazing at which point they start doing this like little pinball machines because it just it's shaping them it's feeding them in the old testament words were viewed as powerful they were viewed as containers tangible things words were viewed as little containers of power that would go out and words were literally in the hebrew mindset creative comes from the book of genesis there on your outline all the way back in genesis chapter one it says and god said let there be light and there was light and so the ancient hebrews would look at that and they would say you know we are created by his word everything was created by 
his word. And we are created in the image of God. And they would take that and they would say, so the words that we say are very powerful. So they would be very careful about the words that they would say because they believed that the words that they spoke would have a creative power in their future. For instance, you've all heard the story how Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and he wants to bless Esau. And you'll recall the story how Jacob kind of slips in there and uh, Isaac finds himself giving the blessing to Jacob. And in the blessing goes something like, you know, you're going to be blessed and your brother's going to be your servant. You're going to multiply and great things are going to happen to you. And so then Jacob leaves. He's stolen the, 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 uh, the blessing from his brother. And then his brother comes in and says, okay, father, I'm ready to be blessed. And his father says, but I've, I've just given the blessing. And Esau says, well, don't you have a blessing for me? To which Isaac says, no, I've, I've already given the blessing. You see, the words have already gone out. They've already begun to do their creative work. They've already begun to shape his future. I've spoken them. He already has that. They viewed words as, as things, as containers of power. And so, in that same way, James is going to hold that words are absolutely powerful. Now, Jesus will talk about words, and he will say, here's where the words that come out of your mouth, where they really come from. Notice there in your outline. It says, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. Here's what he's saying. The profanity that comes out of our mouth is just revealing the profanity that's in our heart. It's just revealing what's on the inside. That's all it's doing. Another time Jesus was speaking and he says there in your outline, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. You've heard me say that we're all like a tube of toothpaste and when the squeeze is on, whatever's on the inside, well, that's what's going to come out. The words that come out simply reveal what's on the inside. The theme of James, as we've been studying over the past few weeks, is simply to take your faith and do something with it. Now, woven into this teaching, as James travel, as we travel through this book, we're going to find that Jeeve, the, the guy who wrote the book, James, has woven in this book a teaching on words in every chapter. I want you to turn to chapter 1 and just notice a couple of verses. Notice chapter 1, verse 19. He's going to say... This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, and then it says slow to speak and slow to anger. Here's what he's going to say. Watch your words. Your words are powerful. Go down to chapter 1, verse 26, and notice what he says. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is, and in my translation it says, worthless. You see, your tongue reveals what's going on in your spiritual life. Now go over to chapter 2, verse 14. It says, what use is it, my brethren? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? There's a lot of God talk. They're speaking a lot of stuff, but it's not really matching up to their life. And wouldn't you agree that sometimes people who have the most God talk are the most irritating? Is it just me? And, and, and lots of God talk there in, in 2.14. Now flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. He continues to talk about words, and he says, 
What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Again, within the believers, within the church, they were quarreling words, antagonistic words. And then look over at verse 11 of chapter 4, and it says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. What are they doing? We're going to find out that they were gossiping against one another. Against, again, words coming out of their mouth that should not be in the life of the believer. Look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, and it says, do not complain, brethren, against those, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. What are they doing? Using words and complaining against other believers. Then in verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, But above all, my brethren, again, speaking to believers, do not swear. Now, when he says swear, he's not talking about swearing the way that we might think of swearing. He's talking about making promises and oaths and things of that nature, but the words that come out of our mouth. And so James is going to be talking quite a bit about words as we travel through this book today. We've entitled this, for lack of a, a, better, a better title, we've called this the Sermon on the Mouth. And James is going to begin by talking about those who would be pastors and or teachers. Notice James chapter 3. Verse 1, we pick it up, and it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Now, I've always liked how the NIV uh, says it there on your outline. I've placed it. It says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There's typically two ways of looking at this verse. One way, and, and both ways I think are true, one way is that if, if you want to be a teacher, you have to understand that you're going to be judged a little bit more strictly, not by God so much, certainly that'll be the case, but, but by people around you. That when you begin to speak for God, people are going to look at your life and they're, they're going to constantly watch. And so in doing this, you just have to know that you're going to be living in somewhat of a glass house. People are going to be looking at your life continuously. I, I think that that's an application, but I think in the context of what he's saying, when he says, let not many of you, or not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brethren, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, I, I think he's talking more about the representation that we have of God and how serious God takes that representation. He says, so you'll be judged more strictly. You see, when... When I stand up here, or when any pastor stands in front of a congregation and you speak, people think that you have the message from God, and that's certainly the idea, that, that you, you want to have that message, and you want to give that message that's coming from God. And so they take what you say, and they run with it. God says, if you're going to stand up, and you're going to teach, and you're going to claim to represent me, you need to know that you're going to be judged more strictly, because I take the representation of myself, God would say, very seriously. How seriously does God take it? Well, notice there in your outline, it says, but the prophet, this is from the Old Testament, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously. I love that word. Uh, he speaks a word presumptuously. He just, he just kind of put it out there. It wasn't really true. It's a little bit presumptuous. You know, maybe he had ill intent, maybe he didn't, but just speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I've not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods. That prophet shall die. Basically, God says, if you claim to represent me and you get a little off track, you should die. We'll kill you. Now, would you say that he takes it serious? 
yeah, it's, it's, it, I don't know what it does for you, but it makes me a little bit nervous because, you see, I stand before you, and God's basically saying, Dan, I really want you to do this, but if you get off track, really, I want to kill you. So, I mean, that, that just makes me a little bit nervous, which is why I try to spend somewhere between 12, 16, and sometimes 20 hours each week as I prepare. Most of that is simply looking to make sure that what I'm bringing to you is accurate. Because I never want to be in a place where I teach you something and you take it and you run with it and you go off on a tangent somewhere and you find your place, you find yourself in a very weird place spiritually. Notice what Jesus had to say about representing him. He said there in your outline, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Heavy words from Mr. Forgiveness. Wouldn't you agree? And here, here's what he's saying. Is I take the representation of myself so seriously that if you claim to represent me and you misrepresent me somehow, some way, that's how I feel about it. Now, thankfully, God gives grace to us, but but the idea is you need to take very serious how it is that you represent him. So James is going to start with those who teach, but now he's going to expand it. He, he's dealt with those who, who, claim, who want to teach, but then verse 2, notice it says, for we, now underline the word we, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect, underline perfect man, able to bridle, underline bridle, the whole body as well. Now here's what I like about this verse. When James says, for we all stumble, here's what James is doing. James is saying we, he's including himself in that mix of people who teach, who from time to time says, you know, even, even me, it's something I'm working on. We all stumble in many ways. Here's the point of verse two, and you want to write this down. Spiritual maturity is measured in the mouth. Spiritual maturity is measured in the mouth. And James is saying, if I can control this one thing, I've got it made. I've got it made. Verse 2 again, he says, For we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. The word perfect there is simply the Greek word teleos. It just means there in your outline, you've reached the end, you're complete, you're, you're perfect, you're mature. The idea is that your tongue is the measure of where you are spiritually. It, it reveals where your spiritual level, your spiritual maturity is at. And he says, if you can bridle your tongue, if you can control your tongue, you can control the rest of your life. Verse three, he says, now if we put bits into the mouths of, or into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Verse four. Look at the ships also. They are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a, and I underlined, very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Here's James' point. You want to write this down, that my tongue directs my life. My tongue directs my life. As you read this, there is nothing to indicate in any way that James is speaking allegorically or symbolically. James is speaking literally when he teaches that our tongue literally directs our life. He says in verse 3, he says, look at it like this. 
He says, we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they obey us. We direct their entire body as well. He says, can you imagine a horse is huge, and yet you put this little bitty bit in its mouth, but here's what happens. Wherever that bit is aimed, that's where that horse is going to go. We all know that. He says, so that's, that's my first illustration. But then he says, but let me give you another illustration. The ships also, verse 4. He says, look at the ships also. They're so great and are driven by strong, wind, strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. He says, you have this ship and, and you have wind, you have waves, you have current, you have all of that, but the ship will literally go in the direction that you have set the rudder. Our words are the rudder of our life. Our words literally will take us in whatever direction we want to go. Or, or, or we will literally go in the direction that our words are, are leading us. So there's one question, and simply the question is this. Where do I want to go? Because my words are taking me there. You've all heard the story. It was in the Old Testament, all the way back in the book of Exodus. Nation of Israel are imprisoned in Egypt. Being imprisoned in Egypt, God shows up and delivers them, takes them out of Egypt. As he does that, you'll recall there's 10 plagues. They see God's power. They see God show up. He leads them out of Egypt. Then he takes them to the sea. As they come to the sea, God splits the sea. You've seen the movie, right? God splits the sea. The nation of Israel goes into the sea. They come out the other side. The Egyptians come into the sea. And what does God do? He simply allows the ocean to come back in and squash them all. They're done. The nation of Israel, they've seen that. Well, not only that, they run out of food. So what does God do? He provides manna for them every morning. They've seen that. But here's what happens. They've seen God provide. They've seen his power. And they know his promise. His promise was that he was taking them from Egypt to the promised land. He's taking them there. One little problem. Every time they encounter a challenge, an obstacle, something isn't looking just right, they don't say God is taking us to the promised land. Here's what they say. All the way in the beginning, Exodus chapter 14, when the story really begins, it says, they said to Moses, there in your outline, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? And they said it time and time again. So you come to the point where they go through Exodus, they're saying that. They go through Numbers, and they're saying that. Or Leviticus, they come to Numbers, and they're still saying it. And so finally, you get to the end of Numbers, and notice what it says. At the end of Numbers, God finally says, for the Lord had told those Israelites that they would surely die in the desert. What's going on? They'd seen God's power. They had God's promise. I'm taking you to the promised land. Every time there's an obstacle, they don't speak his promise. They just simply begin to speak their circumstances. They accuse God, and they say it, and they say it, and they say it, and they say it. There comes a day when God says, okay, You've said it and said it and said it and said it. I gave you my promise, but you keep speaking this. And so because you've said it and said it and said it, I want you to know you've said it. Now you have it. And literally their words chose their destiny. And it wasn't God's plan. His plan was to take them to the promised land. But they chose their destiny and their words became the rudder of their life. And finally God says, you keep saying it. 
And you keep saying it. And so now you have it. It wasn't his promise, but it's what they said and said. You see, our words have amazing power and potential. It was our words that got us our spouses. It was our words for some of us that got dates. It was our words that got us jobs. On the other hand, it was our words many times that got us out of being with our spouse and we got divorced. It was our words. And for some of us, it was our words that got us divorced again. It was our words that got us out of our career. It was our words that caused us to destroy relationships. And for some of us, even our words got us into jail. You've all heard the story. You all know how my dad, who spent eight and a half years in a federal prison, spending eight and a half years in a federal prison, you say, what was his crime? The crime was conspiracy. He never actually did the crime. He just simply talked about doing the crime. And he spent eight and a half years in the federal prison. You see, words are powerful and they will literally direct your life. My life goes in the direction that my word and my mouth have set. So we've been talking about how our words lead us in a certain direction, how they direct our life. James continues and he says, but here's the problem. We are walking around with a loaded weapon. And you might call this a weapon of mass destruction. As he gets into this in verse 5, he says, So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, and the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire, and I want you to underline the word course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. Here's what he's saying. You want to write this down. James is saying that my tongue has the power to destroy. Now, right now, without, without thinking of the words, but could we agree that right now we could destroy our lives with words in less than 30 seconds? I mean, do you agree that tomorrow, if you were to walk into your place of employment, and as you walk in, you could, in 30 seconds, with certain words, literally destroy your entire career? Do you agree that you could walk into your spouse, and with 30 seconds or less of words, you could be on your way to divorce court? Do do you agree that you could, in 30 seconds or less, destroy your relationship with your children, and it might take years to repair? I realize that each week as I stand up here, that in about 30 seconds, probably less, I could forever destroy my calling and position and and just being here as the pastor, my credibility as a pastor, with less than 30 seconds of some really bad words. Would you agree? Our words are powerful. Now, now, um, there is no evil that cannot be initiated with words. Verse 6, notice what he says. He says, and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. And the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. I I love that because when he says it sets on fire the course 
of our lives. The truth is sometimes words come out and they destroy. And it doesn't just end in that incident. You and I at times deal for years with the words that we have spoken or the words that have been spoken. And it has literally set on fire the course of our lives. The word course there in the original language means a wheel, like you would attach it to a cart. The idea, Bible commentators say, it's kind of like you take a cart and you, you simply light it on fire and let it just run through the village. And as it would run through the village, everything that it gets near would catch on fire. In a very short period of time, the entire village would be, would be on fire. That's kind of the idea. Now, we know this is true, that our words can destroy our lives. I mean, if we were to be honest, if we were to be painfully honest, there are some of us who could, who could share that, you know, if I were to be honest, that, that it was words that burned up my marriage. It, it was words that burned up my relationship with my children. It, it was words that, that burned down my career. It was words that burned down my friendship. And some of us would say, well, I haven't really burned anything down with my words, but I sure have been burned by the words of others. Would you agree to that? Solomon would describe it like this. There in your outline, he says that a worthless man digs up evil. And then he says, and I've underlined this, while his words are like scorching fire. While his words are like scorching fire. That's what our words can be like. He goes on to say, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Here's what he's saying. The words that are coming out of our mouths are either bringing death or life to the people around us. So Paul says there in your outline, let your speech always, I've underlined the word always, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Here's what he's saying. You have to focus on your words. James articulates the power of our tongue. And he says in verse 7, he says, For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of, and I've underlined, deadly poison. He says, every animal that you can imagine has been tamed or can be tamed. But there's something that can't be tamed. It's not like an animal. It's a, it's a deadly poison. It's restless. And it's just simply the tongue. Here's James's point. You want to write this down. As it relates to the, as it relates to the tongue, there's no final solution. Here's what I've learned. There will never be a time in my life when I've arrived as it relates to the tongue. There will never be a time when I won't need to be completely on my guard concerning the words that I say. Kind of paraphrase that for you on your outline and just says taming the tongue will always be a work in progress. Now, if we're back at my Baptist church from way back when, it would be at this point where the pastor would say, can I get an amen? To which we as a congregation would all say, Amen, because we know that to be true. The truth is, every one of us is walking around with a loaded weapon. And we can use that either to heal or to destroy. But James says it's actually worse than what you might think. Verse 9, he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. 
He says, nowhere else in nature do you see anything like this where the tongue blesses and curses those who have been made in the image of God. Verse 10, he goes on and carries the point further and he says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Now I've underlined nor can salt water produce fresh. So, so James uses this illustration to kind of bring it home and he says, picture you have this spring somewhere, this fountain, and, and on one side of the fountain you have fresh water being pumped in. You can drink it. it it's wonderful. It's clear. And then over here on the other side of the same spring you have this kind of like bitter, dirty water just pumping into it. Now they come into the same spring or the same opening. They're kind of bubbling out. Now the question is this. If you have clean water coming in and dirty water coming out, will the water ultimately be clean? Will it be both clean and dirty as it mixes together? Or will it be because it's coming out of the same opening and mixing, will it all be dirty? It's all going to be dirty. Here's the idea. You can be saying wonderful things over here, but if you're spewing out over here bitter, dirty, filthy, um, negative, then just know that, that... what it does as it comes out of the same opening, all the good that you say here is negated by the filth that comes out here. And as it mixes together, it's all just dirty. The idea is that you cannot build a good life speaking good here. You cannot build a great life speaking this way here and then out of the same opening, allowing that which is filthy or bitter or or just undrinkable impure coming out because when it mixes together it completely negates all that is good now at this point can i ask you does that make sense now now why why is that so important because we come to this and we all realize that there's a problem here do we not realize that there's a problem we realize this and so now's the point where james needs to go okay so here's what you do about it here's point one here's point two and here's point three wouldn't you agree But there's a problem. James doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, James doesn't say anything else about it. He just changes the subject and starts talking about something completely different. And and you're kind of expecting that James is going to give us some solutions here. And and right now, if we would be honest, I I think that we would say, you know, I I need some solutions. I mean, I'm sure that there's some wives in this congregation who are saying, Pastor Dan, we need some solutions on this. Don't just leave us here because... I can't take another five years of his continuous condemning and his criticizing and critiquing and putting down everything that I do. I think that there's some husbands in our congregation who would say, Pastor Dan, we need some, we need some answers because quite honestly, I don't even want to go home anymore because as soon as I open that door, I know it starts and I don't want to do this anymore. I need some answers. And, and I would suggest that all of us are children whether we are grown or we are growing, and there would be some among us who would say, I I just can't even deal in this relationship because quite honestly, I've never done anything right in their eyes and I don't even want to talk to them anymore. Could you give us some solutions? Well, here's what I think James is doing. 
I think that James kind of ends by telling us what the problem is and kind of, kind of making it so that we, we really get the sense that there's a problem here. I, I think what he's doing is, is this. Now, how many of you took a, um, driver's education in high school? Did you take that? Did, now, when, I don't know how it was for you, but it was a few years ago when I took driver's education. And, and so when we would have driver's education, we had to do all the normal things, like we had to have the horse and buggy and you had to parallel park and <laughs> that sort of thing. But, but then, then we would go in and we'd have to watch the movies. We had movie week. Now, did you guys have movie week in, in driver's ed? And, and you'll, recall, you'll recall that movie week was just movies of mangled cars and bodies and blood and brains. It was terrible. And it was constant, constant. And then you have the narrator, you know, Susie was going to the prom, but she's not going to come home. You know, and they showed all the man. Now, the idea was that if they could show you how bad it can get, maybe you would drive safer. You know, the, driving can be a good thing, and, uh, but it can also be a very potentially dangerous thing. I think that's what James is doing. He's shown us that although our words can become a very good thing, they can, they can, they can also be, or they are, potentially very dangerous. So it's at this point that James just says, okay, I've kind of told you that, so I'm going to just go talk about something else. You guys run with it, now you know. And there you have it. Now, I, however, would like to say a couple of things as it relates to, the, to our words and the tongue. James ends right there, but I would like to just share a couple of things that I've learned and am learning, and hopefully to give us some handles on the words that come out of our mouth. So I want to share three things. Can I do that? Yeah. And we're going to call this, Help, I'm Talking and I Can't Shut Up. So you take this and you apply it and, and wherever it fits, use it. And if not, then, then uh, you know, whatever. For all of us, I would say the first thing that we need to learn to do is we need to learn to think before we speak. Think before we speak. You see, many times the thoughts that enter my mind are involuntary, but I always get to choose the words that come out of my mouth. And so I need to think before I speak. Notice this verse. Solomon said it like this in uh, Proverbs 16. It says, intelligent people, what's that next word? Think before they speak. What they say then is more persuasive. That's important because I run into people who profess to be believers and they say something like, I just speak the truth. I just say whatever comes to my mind. I just put it out there. You know, come what may, I put it out there. The Bible says that's stupid. You need to think about what you are, uh, what you are saying. Okay. <laughs> now why is that so important because there's a reality and notice this reality from proverbs 18 it just says you will have to live with the consequences of everything you say you have to live with the consequences of everything you say it's been said that the seven most expensive words in the english language are i now pronounce you husband and wife you say it, and now you live with the consequences of what was said. And some of you are saying, I should have thought just a little bit longer before I said it. And you would never admit that right now, would you? So I need to think before I speak. Now, the next thing I would say as it relates to words, this one is going to be for us as individuals. Before I speak, or as I speak, I need to say what God says about my situation. This is 
a point that you've heard me make many times before. Every time I have the opportunity to make this point, I certainly will. The Bible says in Amos 3.3, this is one of my life verses, just can two walk together except they are agreed, or except they be agreed. I walk with God when I agree with God. I agree with God when I say about my situation, my circumstances, what it is that God is saying about my circumstances. We use the illustration of the nation of Israel. They come out, God has said, I'm taking you to the promised land. But they did not walk with God by agreeing with God. And the relationship ultimately did not work out the way that they had hoped. They kept going in a different direction. You can't walk with God unless you agree with God. So you need to say about your situation, your circumstances, what it is that God says. Now, if you're saying, well, Pastor Dan, I don't know what God says about my, my circumstances. This week, shoot me an email. I'll send you a Word document. It just has a bunch of promises that you can apply to your situation and, and so that you can say about your situation what it is that God says. Because my words reveal my faith and my words will ultimately shape my faith. Paul would say it like this. Paul would say, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for faithful is he that promised. He says, you have to say what it is that God is saying. Anyone can spew out negativity and the circumstances and all that's going wrong. Everyone can describe the situation, but it takes a man or woman of faith to say what God says in the midst of circumstances. Remember verse 2. Everybody look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. And it's in that point that we come to realize that our spiritual maturity is measured in our mouth. You'll recall the story in Luke chapter 8. It's a fascinating story. We looked at it a few months ago. Jesus tells the disciples, we're going to the other side of the lake. Now, you'll recall, if you've been around for any length of time, that in the Bible, it teaches that Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet, but he's literally God in the flesh. 2,000 years ago, God came to the earth as a man, and, and that was Jesus. All of Christianity is divided on that one thing. All that is Christian holds that Jesus is God. All that is not Christian holds that Jesus is not God. And so 2,000 years ago, God comes to the earth, and he tells his disciples, Jesus tells his disciples, we're going to the other side. Everybody gets into the boat. Jesus gets into the boat, and he goes sound asleep. Halfway across the lake, all of a sudden, there's a storm kind of unexpected. And you'll recall the disciples and how they responded in that circumstance. They begin to cry out. They're terrified. They begin to accuse God of not caring about their circumstance as they turn to Jesus and they say, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? They accuse God of not caring. They accuse him of not knowing. They, they believe that they're going under. Finally, they wake up Jesus. The sign should have been Jesus is asleep. He's okay. We could be okay too. They wake him up, and you'll recall the story. Jesus commands, and he says to the, to the waves and the wind, be still, and it's done. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, where is your faith? What they really believed was coming out and being revealed by their words. 
It was revealing their faith. Instead of saying, in the midst of their trial, Jesus says we're going to the other side, saying what he said, they began to say something else. We are perishing. I agree with God when I walk, I walk with God when I agree with God. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Now we take God's word and we affirm that. Now secular psychology jumps onto this and they say, well, we want you to do affirmations. Now affirmations are when you take a phrase and you say it and you say it and you say it to where it becomes imprinted in your subconscious and you believe it. And, and it really works. That's not what we're doing. Because when they do that, they're trying to create a reality that does not exist. When you and I affirm or say what God says, we're simply clinging to the promise that God has given to us. And we're just saying what God says about our circumstance, not what our circumstances are. And the Bible calls that faith. So I need to think before I speak, and then I need to say what God says about my circumstances. Now that's as it relates to me. Now, as I speak and I relate to everyone else, I realize that I need to become, and you want to write this down, a one man or a one woman walking pep rally for everyone around me. Notice what the Bible says. Therefore, encourage one another and build up, underline that, one another, just as you also are doing. The world is continuously putting us down. So our job is to put people up. The the world tells us that we're too fat, we're too skinny, we're too tall, we're too short. If we have straight hair, we should have curly hair. If we have curly hair, we should have straight hair. We have yellow teeth, we have bad breath, we smell funny. The world is constantly putting us down. Is it only me? (laughs) Have you noticed this too? So the world puts people down, so my job is to put people up to encourage them. Now, every once in a while, I feel like I need to just step in here and uh, give you a practical application. Can I do that today? Here's your practical application. I want to give you one phrase. If you say this one phrase, it will tremendously change your life and your interaction with other people. This one phrase, if you're about to get fired by your boss and your boss is angry at you, if you say this one phrase, you'll probably keep your job. Uh, if you are pulled over by a policeman and he's about to write you a ticket, I want to give you the one phrase that is pretty much guaranteed to help you out. Ladies, this is even more effective than crying. This, this, will, this will absolutely, if, if your spouse comes in and begins to yell at you about something, the way that you change the situation, this one phrase will literally turn any enemy into a friend. It is guaranteed to work. You want to hear it? You simply look at that person who is about to write you a ticket, fire you, yell at you, scream at you, make your life miserable, and you simply look at them and say, are you losing weight? (laughs) Try it. It will work. It turns any, any enemy into a friend. So my job is to encourage the people around me because here's what I know. Everyone around me is hurting. Everyone is having a difficult time and every one of us are trying to figure it out. And the world is putting us down and my job is to put us up. Paul would say it like this. Paul would say, let no unwholesome word, underline that, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, underline that, edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace, now underline the word grace, 
and do not grieve, underline the word grieve, the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So here's what Paul says. First of all, if you're going to be a believer, you have to put aside all unwholesome words. You just cannot spew out words that are inappropriate for a believer. And I believe that you have to take that to the next level. Some words are just common, but they probably need to be just left aside. And so some words we just have to let go, unwholesome words. Then he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. The word edification is also the word from where we get the word edifice. That is a building, building something. The words that come out of my mouth are to be words that are building someone up. They're they're encouraging. They're they're adding structure to their lives. They're, They're encouraging, taking them up, not putting them down. The words that we have, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need for the moment. What does that mean? It means I need to think it through that it may give grace to those who hear. The words that I give need to be giving grace to the people around me because once again, everyone's having a hard time, everyone is hurting, and we're all just trying to figure it out. That's a true statement, isn't it? It, it, It's true for every one of us. So my words need to give grace. But I want you to notice something. You see, I grew up knowing this verse. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth except that which is good for edification in order that may give grace to those who hear it. I I know that verse. And I also grew up knowing another verse which says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. What I never connected was that those two verses are not separated in the Bible, but they are connected. When Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, He says, but only such a word that brings edification or that edifies, that builds up, attached to that is simply, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He attaches it in such a way that as you read this, what's taking place, he says, I want you to build people up and speak to them in that way, not in a way that would grieve, that is break the heart of the Holy Spirit. My words are either building up or they are breaking, grieving the heart of the Holy Spirit. They're attached. you, You can't separate. It just continues the thought. So my words are building up or they're breaking the heart of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Now, there are a couple of areas where we tend to become very casual about this and they're the areas that we need to be most vigilant on. I believe that we become very casual as it relates to our spouse. I realize that in my marriage relationship to Cheryl, she needs to hear, she's on the front row. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) She's on the front row. Um, She needs to hear because she's human and she's my spouse, how much I love her and how I would be lost without her and how much she's brought into my life and the way that she's She's changed um, everything in my life. She needs to hear that. She needs to hear how much I love her and how much I care for her, and it's all true. But she needs to hear it, and the words that I have are either going to build her up or they're going to tear her down. And she needs to hear that. And listen, husbands and wives, your spouse needs to hear 
that from you. And because right now, here's what you're doing. The words that you are speaking today, you are building the marriage that you're going to have in the next 5, 10, 15, and 20 years. And so you need to be building them up every opportunity. Does that make sense? Because you're literally creating the kind of marriage that you're going to have. The other area that I would say that we become very casual in is in the area of our children. I realize that my children, their self-concept is going to be the the sum total of the words that I'm speaking to them. I realize that my children are going to become tomorrow the words that I speak to them and about them today. Andy Stanley, who pastors the church in Atlanta, church of 16,000 people, wrote a number of books. He says, he says, his earliest remembrance is every day his dad would look at him and his dad would say, Andy, God's going to do big things in your life. Andy, God's going to do big things in your life. Every day, Andy, God's going to do big things in your life. Now, Andy pastors a church of 16,000 people, wrote a number of books. Would you say that God's doing big things in his life? Absolutely. Where did it come from? I believe it, it came from a father speaking into the life of his child. One of the, the people on our staff, Lindsay Cornell, says that every day when her dad would take her to school, as she would get out of the car, her dad would say, Lindsay, what does Philippians 4.13 say? And she would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. She says it made a profound impact on her life. My experience was not quite that way. You see, in my family, my earliest remembrance is every night my stepfather coming into my bedroom and looking at me as I'm laying at the bed and standing in the door saying, you are the problem. You are the one. You are the reason we are having marital problems. You are the reason that we are having financial problems. If you weren't here, everything would be good. And he would say this until literally he got tired. And then at age 13, everybody wondered why I moved out. They wondered why the police had to come to the house on numerous occasions. Thank God that there were some godly people who chose to speak something different into my life because I was becoming what the words were telling me I was to become. And as a guy who was kicked out of three colleges, I wasn't going in the right direction. Thank God for some godly people who chose to speak some very different things. Your children are becoming what you are speaking to them. And so you need to choose those words very carefully. In our house, we never say to our kids, you are such a slob. How come you can't clean your bedroom? That never comes out of our mouth. So we take our child to, to karate class. The karate teacher comes out and says, you know, it's just, he needs focus. Why can't he get focus? He's just unfocused. Got to get some focus. Why isn't he focused? And, and, and the, my, my 10-year-old turns to me and says, Dad, what's going on? He says, you know, hey, you know, we have to give him some grace, Daniel. He's never really been trained in working with geniuses. So he doesn't really understand. You know, I, I'm going to speak one thing regardless of what somebody else may speak. That's not always easy. Parents, you, you probably know this. Um, a few months back, we tell our, our 10-year-old, he's nine at the time, him and Abby, we go, okay, here's what we want you to do. We're going out to Chick-fil-A. We live out in Jupiter Farms. We're going out to North Lake. We're going to do that. So we need everybody to get dressed, get everybody dressed, have them all go to the bathroom, make sure they're, they're dressed, ready to go. They've got the shoes on. Everything's good. Okay, you got it? Great. Go do it. 
So they go, Cheryl and I get ready. Everybody's in the car. Dana's like, okay, Dad, we're ready to go. So we get in the car, and we drive. We drive down to North Lake. It takes almost a half hour to get there. We get into the car. Uh, we pull into the parking lot. Everybody comes out, one, two, three, four, five, and we're seven. So we look inside. We're like, Daniel, are you coming? And his head comes around. Um, Daddy, um, there's a problem. What's the problem? Um, I forgot my shoes. You forgot your shoes? Uh, yeah. When did you realize you forgot your shoes? Just now. Well, weren't you the one who had everybody get dressed, got their shoes on, got to go to the bathroom, and now we're here, we've driven a half hour, and you don't have your shoes on? Yeah. Now, it's in those times where words want to come out, don't they? But it's in those times that words cannot come out, especially then. So he got the opportunity of going across the street to Kmart and buying his pair of shoes for three bucks. But words didn't come out because I need to speak what he's going to become in the next 20 years. I know that if I don't tell my daughters every single day how beautiful they are, how smart they are, how amazing they are, one day some guy's going to show up and he's going to tell them that. And here's what I want. I want on that day when that guy shows up and he tries to put the move on one of my daughters and he says, you know, baby, you are so fine. Mm. I'm telling you, if God made anything finer, he kept it for himself. Mm. I want my daughter to look at him and say, yeah, I'm beautiful. Everybody knows that. What else do you bring to the table, you know? I, I want it so so indelibly imprinted in their subconscious mind that if some guy says, you know, I just don't find you attractive, I want my daughters to look at that person and say, well, obviously it's a good thing we're not getting together because you obviously have a very distorted view of reality. You are so confused because I am amazingly beautiful. I know it. My daddy has told me 500 times a day for the past 15 years. I want that. Agreed? It's always very sad because... This past week, we were at Peanut Island with the family, and uh, we have an Abigail, and she's, she's going to be nine, and she's just amazing. You know, she cooks, she cleans, she does all this stuff that, that, that uh, just, you know, one of those kids that you just are thrilled. And um, there's another family that sits down next to us there at the beach, and um, they have an Abigail, and all of a sudden I hear, Abigail, do this. Abigail, what are you doing? Abigail, what is it? And I'm thinking, why are they yelling at my kid? And then I realize, well, well they have an Abigail too. So I make the comment, and I say, oh, you've got an Abigail. We have an Abigail, too. We were leaving. And to which they said, well, is she a big problem like ours is? To which I said, no, she's, she's, she's wonderful. And they go, do you want to trade? And, um, you know, inside of me, I just wanted to say, no, I don't. But, but if you don't want her, we'll take her because we'll speak something different in her life, and we won't speak that into her life. Because here's what I know. Everybody is having a hard time Everybody's trying to figure it out. Everybody's hurting in some way. The words that we speak are building them up or they're tearing them down. And the last verse on your outline is simply this. A word of encouragement does wonders. And there's no better place to start than with your husband or your wife, your children, your family, and let it go from there. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, here's what we ask. Lord, make us keenly aware of the words that come out of our mouth and help us to communicate grace and help us to communicate encouragement and help us to communicate your heart 
as we speak to those around us. Let our words be seasoned with grace, seasoned as with salt, as it were. And Lord, help us to represent you as we speak those words. Be with us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.